We are looking at the last days this morning. And it's amazing. Everyone seems to be fascinated with the last days. Uh, Intern Jerry and I have had some pretty deep discussions on the last days and uh, how does this all work out. People have been arguing over this stuff for thousands of years. And there are several different theories and and ideas and philosophies and and, uh, even doctrines that are being developed out there. And and, and everyone looks at this and we're, we're not always on the same page. And I promise you that if we all got together and we all started talking about the last days, we'd be all over the place. In fact, in reading the commentaries, I was telling Jerry this this week, uh, I I read five different commentaries on this text, and I had five different positions. Why is that? Because God has given us enough to know the basic truth that Jesus Christ is coming again, but He's not given us so much to be able to nail it down like justification by faith. And so we have to look forward to His coming with faith. And and we have different opinions and different thoughts, and that's okay as long as we center our theology on Christ's literal return. We have to have that right. I read this week, though, in my studies that there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. And there are 318 references to the return of Christ. That equals to an amazing one reference every 30 verses in the New Testament. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And for every one prophecy of Christ's first coming, there are eight of his second coming. Do you think God wants us to be ready? I believe he does. Now, I didn't have access to all of the research and, and couldn't see all the verses they're speaking of. However, the, the fact remains that God has graciously provided us with his truth to be ready. And beloved, we must be ready. The hour is approaching. Now, Christ's return, as far as we understand the rapture, that's imminent. That could happen at any moment, at any time. But the reality is, his return it is coming. And we have to be ready. And so we see the prophecy of the second coming here. We are transitioning away from that narrative healing of the ten uh, lepers uh, where the one Samaritan comes back. And now the, the, the Pharisees come and they ask Jesus about the coming kingdom. And so we see the inquiry by the Pharisees in verses 20 and 21 where they come and they, they speak to Jesus. Now, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So the inquiry of the Pharisees comes, and, and we have to keep in mind that this, uh, this passage is, is not about how we would understand all the end times. You, you have to remember that 1 Thessalonians was not written yet. Revelation was not written yet. You have to think of the kingdom of God in the way that the first century Jews would think of the kingdom of God. You, you cannot go and, and force your understanding of rapture and millennium and revelational uh, understandings from these New Testament books onto this text. Because Jesus is talking to Jews who haven't been given that revelation yet. So we have to understand the kingdom the way they would understand the kingdom. And here the kingdom of God speaks of the rule of God on earth through His Son, Jesus Christ. We're talking about the millennial kingdom. 
That's what the Pharisees want to know is coming. The Greek word basileia is the word for kingdom here. That word always requires a king and a people. And so what the, king, what the Pharisees are asking about with this kingdom is, when is the Messiah going to come and rule over his people? Now, Jesus is going to respond that the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Now, that can be a, a rather tricky word. Uh, because what Jesus is doing by saying that is he's taking the Pharisees' false understanding or incorrect understanding, and he's going to correct it. That, they were looking for specific events to happen. Now, if you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm looking for specific things to happen. We're looking for events. Are we, are we not right to be expecting certain things to happen? Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. See, what Jesus is, was dealing with, they, the Pharisees think the Messiah is coming, and the way in which they will know the Messiah is that he will overthrow Rome. That's what they're looking for. But Jesus tells them, you're looking for the wrong stuff. He's not coming to overthrow Rome, as we know that. The kingdom of God is not coming with a diligent watch, and that, I, that comes with the idea of, of watching and calculation, trying to piece together the puzzles. Now, you and I live in a day where people are trying to piece together the puzzles, and some men have been so bold to make predictions about when Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, I want to make sure that you understand that Jesus is not telling the, the Pharisees that they should not be ready because that would be in contradiction to Luke chapter 12, verse 36, where he says, You yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, and when he knocks, you open to him immediately. No, he wants them to be ready. The issue here is he's saying the kingdom's not going to come as you expected. David Garland said the end will not come according to human calculation or observation, but when it comes, it will be visible to all. Those in Jerusalem will know it. Those in Australia will know it. Everyone in the Americas will know it. Africa and Europe will know it. Asia will see it. It will be apparent to everybody. This is a worldwide event. And Jesus speaks to them in these terms. Now we have to understand that this expectation of the kingdom of God is to be understood how the Jews understood it. From Isaiah 7 and 9. From the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31 where he speaks of the new covenant. Ezekiel 37 and following where, where Ezekiel is given this amazing vision of what the new millennial kingdom will look like. And Daniel chapter 12. And so when the people hear Jesus speak and they hear the authority by which he speaks, they look at him and they say, boy, he fits the bill of this king that we find in the Old Testament. He speaks with such authority, he puts to shame the religious leaders. And he does so with power. And they can't, they can't overcome him, and so they're looking at Jesus in this way. And, and by the way, it's why you read in Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, gives them a parable because they're expecting the kingdom of God to come quickly. But that's not what Jesus is trying to get them to see. But there are a few things you have to recognize especially in this understanding of kingdom that I've just laid out for you as the Jews have understood it. They had an understanding of rapture. That's clear in Daniel 12 too. They understood the rapture. But they didn't understand the rapture the way that most of us would understand the rapture. 
They didn't have the detailed explanation of the tribulational period as we do. Now, they had an understanding of the end times in Daniel chapter 12. Okay, so you've got the explanation of the Antichrist and, and the ten horns and, and all of this stuff in Daniel chapter 12, but they didn't have the understanding of the full book of Revelation, where God opens up and, and gives some images and, and, and quite detailed explanations. And if you've been in Dick's class, I'm sure you have a, a, a decent understanding of all that's there. They didn't have 1 Thessalonians talking about the rapture and, and God snatching his people up in the air with him. And we meet Christ in the clouds. So I want you to right now look down at chapter 20, or chapter 17, verses 34 to 36. And, and you're going to see that, that Jesus talks about there are, there are two men in one bed, and one will be taken, one will be left. There's two women grinding together. One will be taken, one left. Two men in a field, one will be taken, the other left. Jesus is not talking about rapture here. He is not talking about the rapture. He is talking about the kingdom. And, and I, will, I will set forth the arguments that I, I, will, I will make from this text that I believe when the people are taken, that's bad. They are taken in judgment, not to glory. And that's the understanding of the kingdom from a Jewish perspective from the Old Testament. We've already covered some of that in my Isaiah class where, where God speaks of those who remain, those who endure. That's the idea that a Jew would have. And so we, we are not talking about rapture in this text. In fact, uh, as I have told our intern this week, I don't believe Jesus talks about the rapture at all in the second coming. At least on his earthly ministry. He does in Revelation, but on his earthly ministry, he speaks only of his second coming where his feet hit the ground. And he never speaks of it as a day of light. Always a day of darkness. And so, he then tells the disciples that he has to suffer many things first. After his resurrection, they will then ask him in Acts 1.6, Well, hey, you've been, you've suffered, you've been buried, now you're risen again, you're glorified. Hey, kingdom now? Ready to go? But not yet. We know that is not yet time. So the kingdom does not come with a diligent watching and, and calculation. You're not going to be able to read the Bible and, and using numerology calculate the day when Jesus comes back. People have done that. They have, they have bankrupted themselves and others trying to get this message out. And then it comes and it goes. Jesus was serious when he said, no one knows the day or the time. No one knows. And so what Jesus then does is he explains that the kingdom of God is within you. Now, that word within you, I, I think the New American Standard gets it right when it says, is now here. Okay, the kingdom is now here. That word within means among you. It could be explained as it's now here, as the New American Standard gets it. So what Jesus is doing is he is telling the Pharisees, you're looking for the kingdom of God in a future event. With all this observation you're putting together, you're missing the point. The kingdom is already among you. Where's the kingdom? It rests upon Christ. It is in Jesus. And so he is telling them, stop looking forward to these people who will go out and say, see here and see there. No, Jesus is saying, 
It's here. The kingdom comes through a person of Jesus Christ. And it's right in front of your noses. And so I want you to see... Jesus can say that because the truth of the kingdom of God, it, it, yes, it, Jesus Christ came and he has his incarnation and he is born, but the kingdom of God, the ministry of Jesus begins at his baptism where John dunks him and brings him up and as he comes up, the spirit descends upon Christ in the form of a dove. God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And then he goes and he is tempted. He comes back from that temptation victorious and he preaches this message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Luke chapter 4, he preaches from Isaiah 48, 8-9 where he says, The God's Spirit is upon the anointed one to preach the gospel in the kingdom. And then he turns around and said, Oh, by the way, this has been fulfilled in your midst. What's he talking about? The kingdom of God is now here. With Christ. And so Jesus is answering the Pharisees' questions by saying, Stop looking for it to come. It's already here with me. So, beloved, we understand the kingdom of God in this way. In the New Testament, the way that it explains it through Paul's writing and Peter's writing and and, and others, the kingdom of God is the rule of Christ in our hearts. But one day, it will be the physical, real reign of Christ on earth. And so we have to understand the kingdom like this. It's already here, but it's not yet consummated. It's not yet done. So it's here already in our hearts, in Christian believers, but we wait that second coming of Christ where he sets up his kingdom on earth in a final way. So we have seen that inquiry by the Pharisees. Look at the instruction that Jesus gives to his Pharisees in verses 22 to 24. Then he said to his disciples, The days will come and you will desire to see the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning flashes in the sky under heaven and shines to the part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation." He turns his focus to the disciples. He wants them to know the truth. He wants them to see the reality of his second coming. Now, I will tell you, as we look at this next part, there is a sense in which you want nothing to do with the kingdom of God, with the second coming of Christ. You want nothing to do with it. Consider what is said in Amos chapter 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. What good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be a day of darkness and not of light. Well, who is Amos speaking to here? He's speaking to the unbelieving Jews. Those who are outside of God's will. And so it is darkness to those who experience his wrath and his judgment. So Jesus tells his disciples to keep their focus on him. Because there's going to come a time where where he says, you're going to want to see the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see them. He's going to ascend it into heaven to the Father. And you're going to be here with the Holy Spirit, yes. He gives him a comforter. But do you think that these 11 faithful men longed to see Christ again? Oh, I know they did. They waited eagerly for his return. And so he says, do not go after them. He gives them a simple command, and it just simply means... Stay 
the course I've given you. Beloved, there are many attacks upon the Bible today. Men deny the fact that the Bible is God's word, that it is, it is inerrant, that it is breathed out by God himself, it's inspired by God. They deny the fact that it is necessary for you to believe. If they don't want to believe it's clear because if the Bible is clear, then they can't live the way they live. And most importantly, they do not want to believe the Bible is sufficient because if the Bible is sufficient, then you do not need them and all of their philosophies and they can't get paid. They, they can't get their power. They don't want this. But beloved, listen to me very carefully. Don't go after them. You stay the course. Along with this, there are many attacks upon the church today. And I do believe the church needs to be reformed. Now, that might surprise you. Well, what's wrong with the church? Well, sin's what's wrong with the church. Faulty understanding of doctrine's what's wrong with the church. Bringing the world into the church is what's wrong with the church. But how do we reform the church? That's the million-dollar question. With what do we reform it, and to what is the goal of the Reformation? I would say you reform the church with God's word to the design that God has set out of the church in Scripture. You don't reform the church with man's philosophies, which is what a lot of people are trying to do to make the church look nice to the world. The world will reject the church no matter what it looks like, beloved, because the world and the church cannot coexist. We're built upon different foundations. The world rejects Christ. We live for Christ. How can we coexist with darkness when we're light? We can't. And so, beloved, stay the course. Don't go after them. Later, Jesus deals with the reality of false messiahs. Luke 21.8 says, Take heed that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Don't go after them. In a parallel passage to Luke chapter 17 is Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, don't believe it. That's the idea Jesus is giving to them. Now, Jesus also explains how his return will happen. And he uses the, the example of lightning. As lightning that flashes out of one part of heaven shines the other part of heaven, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Jesus is talking about the fact that you, you, you've been outside when a flash of lightning hits. You cannot miss it. The, the, one of those scary moments of my life, when I was a junior in high school, we were outside in football practice in full pads. I got a metal helmet on, metal shoulder pads, and lightning hits about 30 feet away. And I was like, I wasn't waiting for my coach. We all just took off and we ran to the building. We were out. When lightning hits, it is sudden. It is unmistakable. It comes with enormous power. And you oftentimes are terrified. Behold the likeness of Christ's return. You won't miss it. The power with which it comes will be unmistakable, and men will be terrified. This is not speaking of the rapture. And yes, I know that has been taught many times, and yes, I know the rapture will be fast and will be sudden and without warning, but the lightning is, Jesus uses the lightning to speak of himself. 
when his feet hit the ground and he comes to take out his enemies in judgment. Now there's a contrast in verse 25 when Jesus says, but first, which tells us that something vital must happen before verse 24 that takes place in verse 25, and that's the suffering of the Messiah. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Well, what are those things that he must suffer? Well, we know that's the crucifixion. We know that he is rejected by the elders and the chief priests. We know that he is beaten, that he has a crown of thorns shoved on his head, that he is bleeding and beaten and rejected and mocked and spat upon. They, they call him the king of the Jews in a mocking way. I wonder what it will be like for those men in the last day. You mocked me once. You will not mock me again. But they will, he will be rejected. And this means, this word rejected is so specific in the Greek. It means to judge someone as unworthy. Now imagine judging Jesus Christ as unworthy to be your king. Imagine judging Jesus Christ to be, to lack a sense of genuine qualification for the Messiah and therefore to reject him. That's exactly what the Jews did. And the rejection of Jesus by the Jews and the Romans was shameful and it's devastating and we look at it and we think, how in the world could they have missed him? Beloved, Jesus Christ is rejected each and every day here on our earth, in our own town, for some in our own families. He's rejected even now. They reject that he was, that he's truly God. They reject that he is a son of man and a son of God. They reject that he came to earth to save us from our sin. They reject the very notion of sin, many of them. They say, yeah, sure, there was a Jesus that died on the cross, but he died on the cross and he didn't rise again. If you knew where they put him, you'd find his bones, that's what they say. They reject the notion that he is coming again. Oh, beloved, people are still rejecting Jesus and it is your job and my job to be preachers of righteousness, to tell them of their foolish choices. Because if they do not repent, they will perish. Jesus wants to give, give the disciples a sense of urgency. And so as any good teacher does, he gives good illustrations. And Jesus uses some of the strongest illustrations to liken his return. These are in verses 26 through 37. I'll read all of them. I want you to pay attention. Follow along with me in your Bible. And as it was in the days of Noah... So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and it destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed in that day, he who is on the housetop and his good, with his goods in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that in that night there will be two men in one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. 
Two women will be grinding together, the one will be taken and the other left. Two men in the field, one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So Jesus gives these illustrations to help his disciples grasp what he's teaching them. And he compares his second coming to some of the greatest acts of judgment in all of the Old Testament. The flood, which killed all but eight people, and Sodom and Gomorrah, from which only three people escaped. Can you imagine being the disciples and hearing this? The Son of Man is coming and he is going to wipe out the earth? He's going to bring great judgment? This is not what they were thinking. They were thinking something totally different. And so we read Genesis chapter 7 and, and the, uh, the account of the ark and how Noah was on the ark and, and God closed the door and he brought the floods and everyone but Noah and his family, eight people in total, were destroyed. Everyone. And when the Bible says everyone, it means everyone. And then you speak of, he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. What a terrible thought to live in a, in a city like that. See, the reality is Jesus is comparing his return to the days of Noah. And, and I know that people look at the days of Noah and say, well, it's just going to get worse, and it's going to be so evil, and then and that's when Christ is going to come back. And there's a sense in which that is true. But what Jesus focuses on is not the sin. Although it was rampant, it was bad, and there was not, it was only one person worthy of rescue, and that was Noah. And the fact is this, we don't know that Noah's wife and his three sons and their wives were really worthy of rescue. What we know is Noah was righteous. And God gave grace, grace to his family as well. But what Jesus focuses on is the lack of regard to the message of doom. Noah built the ark. A hundred years he built that ark. And he preached the truth and not one convert. Now, that does something to you when you read that. In our day where we expect results today, <laughs> I'm going to go share the gospel and I'm expecting them to come to Christ. Beloved, you have no control over their response. You only have control over the message. Moses preached for a hundred years and didn't have one person believe him. Can you imagine Noah seeing the faces of those whom he spoke to drowned? Imagine the heart that man had that must have been crushed with grief for those souls who perished. Because they ate and they drank and they married. And they gave their daughters in marriage. They just went through their life. Whatever, this crazy Noah guy building a boat, talking about a flood. It has never rained before. They don't know what rain is. And yet God was right. Hebrews eleven seven says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of such things not yet seen, moved with godly fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according 
to faith. Now, Peter goes on to expound upon this a little bit in 2 Peter 2.5, where he says, God saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Jesus goes on to say that the people of Noah's time were just unconcerned, total disregard. In fact, David Garland has a great quote on this. He says, what Luke notes is the people living in complete disregard to what was coming. Immersed in their daily occupations and pleasures, planning and arranging their lives with no thought beyond their immediate interests. Self-sufficient and self-satisfied until catastrophe overwhelmed them. Does that not sound like 21st century America? We are so consumed with me and what this life looks like for me and how I feel and how I think and what I want that we have no regard whatsoever for what God has called us, let alone looking to the day when Christ comes in judgment. Beloved, we have a world who is so consumed with themselves and the things of the world, they have no thought, no idea of what is coming. He continues with another illustration. Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and his family. And Jesus speaks again of their eating, their drinking, their buying, their selling, their planting. They were preoccupied with the mundane and the material possessions. That's what, that's what they were concerned about. Now, we learn that in 2 Peter 2, 7, that Lot was righteous. And, and that he, he hated the filthy conduct of the wicked. And you don't think he was proclaiming the truth against it? Yes, he was. In fact, he goes to get his sons-in-laws to tell them, it's, God's going to destroy this city. And they thought he was joking. Now, his sons-in-law and those who were with him, I don't know, my mind just like he goes to a bar scene. I don't know why, it just kind of goes to that idea. Those all around them laughed. Oh, crazy lots at it again with his message of doom. But he was proven right. See, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in large part because of their gross sexual sin. And yet here we are in America. I, I, I want you to understand something. As evil as Sodom and Gomorrah was, beloved, America has surpassed them. We are more creative. We have introduced new ideas. We, we have celebrated everything and more than they have. And then we turn around and we say, well, why won't God bless America? You know why. We're a nation full of sin and we celebrate it. We've lost the hand of God. We've lost the blessing of God. The very fact that this nation still stands is beyond me. And one day, it will be brought to the ground. Whether that be before the return of Christ or during, God is not going to bless a nation that is flippant towards his attitudes and flippant towards his commands. America may not be destroyed with fire and brimstone as was Sodom and Gomorrah, although we deserve it, but that day will come. Jesus, again, likens his return to a time of great judgment. See, we, we tend not to think of Jesus' re- return being in great judgment. Uh, I once saw a political cartoon, or not a political, just a cartoon of, of these two angels sitting in a, in a cloud, and they're looking down, and the one says to the other, I miss the days where we could smite people for that. 
And I thought, you know what? That totally misses the point. Because that, they're not getting away with anything. That's either been dealt with in Christ on the cross, or they will deal with it, God will deal with them specifically eternally. And so we have to get that in our heads. God has not changed. He's still a God who will judge and condemn a sinful, lost world and those who reject His Son. Now, many of you, and I am included in this, we long for the return of Jesus. And you're saying, Pastor, you are presenting this in a very, in radically different way than I normally hear it. I have to present it the way Jesus does. See, we look forward to the return of Christ as a day of joy and, and hope and excitement. And there is a sense in which that's true. 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul says, we are eagerly waiting for Christ's return. In 1 Peter 1.7, we are to be found in praise, honor, and glorify God at His second coming. Also in 1 Peter 4.13, when God's glory revealed Christ's return, you will be glad with exceeding joy. Well, that's for believers. Also, John writes in 1 John 2.28 that we, who are, we are to abide in Jesus so that we have confidence that we will not be ashamed before Christ at His coming. The second coming of Christ for the believer is a day of joy and excitement and celebration. And so I want you to see that for the believers, Jesus' return is a manifestation of hope. But for the unbelievers, for those who reject Christ, it is their doom. And you have to see that. See, just as all who rejected Noah's message on the ark, they, those who reject the message of the gospel before Christ's return, they will also be destroyed. And the same as in those in Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no escaping the gaze of the eternal Son of God at His return. You will not hide. And I know that Isaiah speaks of you go and you run and you hide in holes and, and rocks. His gaze will find you. He will find you in his return. Jesus says, In that day, the man who is on the housetop and his goods are in his house, when he sees the Son of Man coming, don't go in and try and get your goods. Let go of the things that tie you to the world. To escape the judgment means you are not tied to this world. This world passes away. Or those who are in the field, don't let him turn back. And then he says those harrowing words, remember Lot's wife. Now if you're not familiar with the, with the account there, when the angels come and they tell Lot and his wife that he's going to, they're going to destroy the city, they say, you go up to the hills and don't look back. And the way the narrative is put is Lot's wife is in front of him and she turns. And why does she turn? Well, there's a lot of reasons why it could be. My personal thought and interpretation is she was in love with the land. She's in love with the city. And it's to be a picture of repentance. When you leave your sin, you do not look back. And she looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt, Genesis 19.36 says. Beloved, God means what he says. We have got to stop playing games with the world. It makes me angry every time I see church leaders say, well, we have to do something so that the world hears the message. Was God's message insufficient for the past 2,000 years? Have we changed? Is God's word not sufficient? 
Is the gospel insufficient? Stop playing games. We need to be serious about what God says. See, you are either allegiant to Christ or you are not. You either believe in the gospel or you don't. There is black and white. There is a a line drawn in the sand, and you're either on this side or that. There is none of this kind of wiggling over the middle. Don't have that option. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says the man who puts his hand to the plow and then turns back, he's not fit for the kingdom of God. Why is that? He has not yet left behind what is to be left behind. Beloved, when you turn to Christ, he is so beautiful and so glorious and so great and so wonderful that what you have left behind does not compare to him. We have to have that idea, that mindset. Jesus follows this up by saying, whoever seeks to save his life, he's going to lose it. He's speaking of those who seek to save their life in the world, and, and, and they're trying to save their life apart from the salvation of God through his grace and the gospel of Christ. And we all know those fall flat. You can't do it. But Jesus is clear that whoever loses his life will persevere. Now, this is quite a paradox because the word lose means to have one's life destroyed. You have your life destroyed and you're preserved. (laughs) Well, how does that make sense? Well, it makes perfect sense when you understand it the way that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about your spiritual life. When you let go of all the stuff that's here on earth and you that life is gone, you are a new creation, you are born again, you're preserved. But see, that old life has to be destroyed. There has to be a death. That's why Paul writes in Romans 6, you have been crucified with Christ. And he says it in Galatians, uh, I believe it's chapter 2.21, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ in me. That old life has to be gone. You don't live for yourself anymore. You live for Christ. And then you come to those verses where he says, I tell you that night there'll be two men in one bed, literally a couch. One will be taken and the other left. And he goes through that. He gives three examples. They're taken in judgment. Just like the people are taken in judgment at the flood and in Sodom and in the fire and brimstone, they're taken. And so to be taken is bad. You don't want to be taken. And that's why the disciples ask, well, where are they taken? This isn't rapture. If they're taken somewhere, and Jesus says, well, they're taken wherever the the vultures are surrounding them and eating their flesh, that's where the Son of Man has been in judgment. Not rapture, beloved. Judgment. Kingdom. Destruction. And so Jesus answers this question about when the kingdom of God would come by explaining the kingdom has already come in himself. He then explains the kingdom would be ultimately ushered in by a time of judgment comparative to the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. And those who are taken in judgment, they are taken. Those who are taken are taken in judgment, and those who remain are saved. Let me give you just two simple applications here. Both of them are simple in their theology, but they are important in their practical work outworking. I cannot stress enough how true this text is. Jesus is speaking of a real event. Jesus is alive and well, and he is preparing for his return. He's preparing for you a place, 
but he's also preparing for his return. Heaven is a real place with real peace for those who have a real faith in Jesus Christ. But hell is a real place with real torment for those who hate God. And that's who Jesus is targeting here in this passage. Those who refuse to bow the knee. The second coming is going to be a real event with real joy for believers like you and me. But with real terror for those who are outside of Christ. The gospel is a message about a real salvation in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth to save real sinners from the wrath of God. To be saved requires a real faith and a real repentance that results in a real allegiance to God. There's no more looking back. No more looking back. The application is simple. Are you ready? Are you ready? Second, beloved, there are people right now who are living life under the wrath of God and they have no clue. They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're planting, they're, at this time they're harvesting. They're just going through life and life is good. And all the while they're under the wrath of God and they have no clue. Where are the preachers of righteousness that proclaim the wrath of God is coming, but he's provided a way of hope through his Son, a way of salvation that for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they turn away from their own works, they turn away from the world's methods, they hold on to Christ and nothing else, they will be saved. Where are the preachers of righteousness? I'm looking at a room full of people who have the understanding. Where are the preachers of righteousness? I'm looking at some. I'm looking at some who are saying, not me. Not me. God's word calls us to go. God's word calls us to make disciples. I'm looking at some who are saying, I'm going. Where are the results? Beloved, leave the results in the hand of God. You can't save anybody. You can't make anyone repent. Let the Lord use the message which you present. Make sure it's the true message here from the Scripture. And He'll bring results. Rest in Him. But beloved, are you ready? Christ is coming again one day, and I believe soon. We are in the last days as far as the last days are concerned. The last days are simply defined like this, between Christ's ascension and his second coming. These are the last days. We don't know when he is coming, but we know this. He's coming. And we must both be ready and proclaiming the truth as preachers of righteousness to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take this truth, you would motivate us with it, that we would not hoard the truth, we would not allow fear to keep us from proclaiming the truth, that we would be men like Noah and Lot. We would be women who, who are raised up to proclaim the truth to our children. Or we can't control what happens in anyone else's home, but, but Father, women can control what happens in their home. Let them raise young men and young women for Christ. 
I pray you raise up preachers of righteousness in the neighborhoods of this little town, in this county, that we may not have to go to Africa to proclaim the truth, but Father, we can do it right in our own neighborhood. Give us the boldness. Use this text as a reminder that Christ is coming and his judgment will be swift and severe and it will be final. So Father, I pray that your grace would be shown to many and may we be a part of that in your kingdom plan. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.